vinegar syndrome, you 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 done a you done a shit. Radio Drome. Welcome to a spooky, twisted souls edition of Radio Drome, and I'm not going to do that anymore. So anyway, welcome to Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the chucklehead from Canada, the Peter. There's, there's no going back. You did it. I know, I did, it, did and it. I'm never gonna live it. I'm never gonna live nope. it down now. Obviously not. And Cecil is off this week, but sitting in for Cecil is David from the UK, who never has anything intelligent to say. But for some reason, I keep asking him to come on the show. I don't know why you do that. I've never have anything intelligent to say. It's strange how I'm gonna do the Adam and Eve promo, and neither of you can participate in it because you two are foreigners. So if you're not a foreigner, you go to AdamandEve.com and you use the promo code Drome, and you will get. Get 50% off of a single item, free U.S. shipping, and a free sex swing. All for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. But also, if you're going to be searching for some of the skeevier parts of the of the web or some of the movies, or specifically the movie we're talking about today, you're going to want a VPN, a virtual private network. For that, you go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN, and that will bring you to Nord's site using our code. And then you will be able to get Nord's protection to encode your data, allow you to make it look like you're in London, for instance, if you want to see a UK-only show on YouTube. Boom, you're in London. If you use 1201beyond.com backslash VPN, you will get 75% off of a three-year plan. That's only $3.49 a month. 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. So on that note, let's talk about Spookies. Spookies is a movie that not a lot of people have seen, not a lot of people have heard of, but is in the news all of a sudden because the Blu-ray just came out from Vinegar Syndrome and it's got a documentary on it. And those of us who grew up watching VHSs and that, Spookies was one of those movies we went to that was, would you say it's safe to say, is a curiosity if you don't know the backstory? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's it's become sort of notorious, especially with all the, the recent talk of it, that it's this, like, lost movie, that there's, like, lost footage, that it's incomplete, that it's a, a, mi- a mishmash of two different movies. It definitely has. And also for the, the special effects, it's become kind of, it's it's become a staple because of its reputation for having these, like, weirdly good special effects scenes in them. So it, it's definitely a, a curiosity watch for sure. At least it is now. Well, in the U, I think in the US it got a theatrical release, uh, a limited one. It was a massive hit here on VHS, huge. And I actually saw it. I mean, you know, a lot of bootleg tapes. You get a bootleg tape, and it's normally like a, a high-end, big-budget film. I actually saw Spookies on a bootleg. It was that popular. It was like a direct-to-video film. Bootlegs of it was circulating. This is back in the eighties. So here it did. I mean, amongst horror fans, people, it was something everyone knew about here, and it was it was very popular. You, like I say, you, any rental shop you walked into, they had Spookies. And as time <laughs> went on, when you'd go into the, ho- the horror section of like that had sell-through tapes, Spookies would be there. It was a staple of sitting on the shelves with like other more popular horror films. Did you guys over there get the same cover art? We had heavy metal 
metal cover artist Richard Corbin do our cover, which really oversells the movie. Let's be fair about it. <laughs> but but, yeah. but we, we had that great cover art. And I know in a lot of cases, the UK had different cover art than the US did. Did you guys get the Richard Corbin cover? We didn't get that cover. We I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head. I think his name's Graham something. And he did a lot. He did the original Evil Dead cover did a lot of those types of films he was kind of the go-to like, i'm kicking myself because i can't remember his name but um he was the go-to guy here for vhs covers back in the day and basically our cover is if, i mean if you google spooky's vhs cover uk you'll, you'll see it and it's like a, an almost cartoony kind of cover with the um the muck men at the forefront and then like a, a collage of all the creatures behind it's a really nice cover it's a really nice cover it was it, it sold the film how it needed to be sold based on the creatures and the effects and that's basically what we need to talk about the creatures and the effects because that's why this movie sort of exists because spookies is actually kind of three films it's two films that make a third film so the film was started by one team and they had it about 90 percent complete they were missing some of the ending they were missing some key shots and then the producer got cold feet or something there's lots of different stories so i don't know what the true story is and then he fired those guys and then brought in a former porn star and all of her porn team to reshoot the movie, re-edit the movie, and make it what it is now. Boy, is, can... it, is it obvious in the end result that it was, <laughs> oh, uh, yes. that it was put together by someone like that. I often champion late 70s, early 80s porn stuff for being better than it should be, hmm. but let's just say Jeannie Joseph was not one of those. In this case, Jeannie yeah, jo- it was somebody who was not really talented, just like a typical sex industry worker kind of person because obviously we you know we had good stuff back then you know you had uh what was it that uh the, the johnny wad movies or whatever there was deep throat there was behind abel the ferrara door. used to direct yeah porn, abel man. ferrara was uh, was a porn director and he he has a hell of an eye for the lens and whatnot and the way a shot should look so it's not like there's no talent whatsoever in the porn industry but then there's also the the ones who just straight up make you know sleazy porn and this is the, the case of spookies this is the the kind of person we got to to um finish the film and it's it's very very visible that it's that it's that case the wraparound stuff the news the, the genie joseph stuff looks like um driller uh driller driller the, the porn parody it kind of looks like someone just stuck <laughs> that it does it really does though it just it's that kind of cheap tacky let's go down to the dime store go and buy a, a rubber mask stick it on put some cobwebs around it and film it That's there true. you go there's the wraparound yeah it, it looks as bad as that it really does mm-hmm. And yet, if you listen to Jeannie Joseph and her side of the story, <laughs> she saved Spookies. Oh, it was called <laughs> Twisted Souls then. But she saved this movie that what, what the other guys had shot, like, like Frank Farrell and that, this was unusable. It was unreleasable. She had to edit it down. She could barely find enough footage to make a completed movie. You hear her talk about it. She saved this movie. Wow. And Jeannie Joseph, that's, I'm not even sure what her real, real name is. Jeannie Joseph is the name she used on some of her directing credits. She was also porn star Erica Havens and Diana Feebler and Anna Freed and Jill Haven and Karen Havens and Sonia Honey and and Jeannie Joes and Jeannie Josefsky and Jeannie Joseph and and Jeannie Joseph now spelled with a J instead of a a G and, and Jenny Joseph and Jenny Lid and Eve Milan 
Khan and Karen St. Joy and Sally Vixen. And I'm going to just stop there. Yeah, she never really stuck with anything. She made one more movie after Spookies that was not a porn. It was called Invasion of the Mindbenders. That solidified she was not a very good director. Yeah. Invasion of the Mindbenders is like really low-end 80s trauma. And she actually was an <laughs> editor for trauma for a while, so that that's not an unfair comparison. Wow. I don't know if you saw but, this, Josh. Did you see it? On the, I mean, like, if you want to see some of this drama, I mean, go over to the Spookies page on Facebook. But there was a post put up there the other day about um, she'd done the same thing to Spookies, to another film. And I've never seen this film before. It's called Spittoon from 1981. And the director had actually posted. They'd actually copied and pasted something the director had wrote about this. It was She'd just gone in there and done the same thing. And his, his quote about Jeannie Joseph was, some women need the casting couch. All she needed was a lawn chair. And oh. I think that pretty God. much sums it all <laughs> up yeah 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 she, she did exactly went in there took a project away from the director said this needs fixing i can fix this for you just did a butcher job on the thing everyone designed it and the weird thing about that which kind of relates to what's going on with spookies now is that that she had the negative and when she did her cut of the film all the elements disappeared after that there's yeah. nothing left to go back and redo the director's version of the film there's also one other thing that sums up how untalented Jeannie Joseph actually was. And that is the original special effects guy on Spookies. He got fired for being incompetent. He got fired. You'll hear in the interview that we're going to play in a little bit, his work was just so far below par, it was unusable. So, of course, when she goes to make Invasion of the Mindbenders, she hires him to do the special effects. (laughs) (laughs) Your your favorite thing in the world, Josh, failing upwards. This is, she's the best at it. She really is. (laughs) Well, and and she also, like like I said before, she is very much i saved this movie blah 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 she has one quote that totally sums up what a bitch she is about this (laughs) quote this film was the ladder up for some people. I won't say who. While it may not be a great film, for me it was about helping someone who had invested a lot of money and was going to lose it all without having a releasable film. The end result was releasable. Whether you like it or not, it was a film Sony picked up. I understand that those guys still hate me. They're angry. I'm sure they disagree with what I did, but that's Hollywood. You can't hold a grudge for over 30 years. Unquote. Jesus. Uh, what a bitch. Yeah, yeah, you yep. can hold a grudge for over 30 to 40 years. Jerry Goldsmith held a grudge against, uh, Ridley Scott till his, uh, till the day of his death because of the, uh, recycling of his music that they use. So yeah, shut up, cunt. You did something wrong and people <laughs> hate you for it. She even, she even went on to say, quote, I would think that they would grow up and move on. Wow, They're wow. still mad at me. These are, these are the words of, of a sociopath. Like as simple as that. I mean, this, it's ridiculous. The amount of people who've worked on this thing. I, you, I mean, now you can look at this and just pick it apart and sit. And, and you can, once you know this is two different films, you can see which is the dog shit and which is mm. the talent and which is the, the good film. And everything she did on this is dog shit. Like, it's it all is. the terrible things about it, which you can blame to her, is, is her input into the film. I, I spoke to, I've known Al for quite a while now, uh, the special effects guy, the, um, the interview you're playing tonight. And um, he actually gave me an original copy of the script for Spook is the way it was as Twisted Souls and there's so, like even on the, the level of not even the stuff she filmed but the stuff that she cut from from the movie as it is you just think what, what the f*** 
were you thinking? It really is this, like, why did you cut, this was filmed and you had this and it made it so much more linear and made sense. I mean, a lot of the people, a lot of people review it and say, oh, they're not teenagers in this film. Why is there like an old guy and this guy and that guy? And in the original script, you find out like the, the, the characters actually have relationships and not just cardboard cutouts. And it's like the old guy's there because he's the boss of one of the other girls and he's come to look over the guy that, that you know, the Stallone guy and all the, the fighting and all that business. He knows he's a drunk and a nightmare. And so he's there to watch him. And then there's like some sort of like characterization there. And yeah. it's in the script and it was filmed. And, and, and she went in there and was like, oh, yeah, you don't need this. We, we, we need like a, an, an old guy. We need a young guy and an old guy, guy's makeup uh, and a princess. And you think, what the f*** are you thinking? Like, like, and the birthday party. And the birthday what party. What is with the whole birthday party <laughs> yeah. thing? I have no idea. I have no idea. But you think, I mean, like, you gotta think, like, when Prometheus come out and that guy Pierce and the old person wake up, is this like, was that a reference to Spookies? Was that a reference to <laughs> Jeannie Joseph? <laughs> Cause it's the only two people, Ridley Scott and Jeannie Joseph, there you go. There, there's the claim to tell. When it comes to Spookies, if you didn't know the backstory, do you think the movie is a decent film, even with the obviously changing film stocks? Because th- that was one of the things that I thought completely unforgivable. She mm. shot on a different film stock than the other footage so it's obvious which is her footage which is al's footage etc etc that just shows how uneducated she really is that she didn't even see that like detail that you're you're supposed to shoot with the same type of stock and the same type of camera like she didn't even know that so it, it just shows it just shows how like uninformed, how untalented, how just every un that you can think of in the book that this chick was. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I th- I, the only thing I can say that's impressive about it is it's an impressive hack job. It's like how you take something which is like completely competent and like right. I mean, it, it is in a way a skill to to make something that useless. From something that was once good. Because yeah. it was all there. Like I say, I've read the script. And he's then it's like, oh, this actually makes sense. And all these tiny little things that iron out a smooth story. You think, oh, yeah, that, this was all there. But then she cut this out and filmed all this other stuff, which was absolute nonsense. It looks like Driller. Complete movie. There's the vision. It's complete now. And you just think, like, this person has somewhat of a career. And that's what's absolutely f***ing terrifying. Well, I, I don't want to just spend this whole episode bashing Gene Joseph. <laughs> trust me. I do think we may do that movie, in a few weeks. Much, I don't the know. The movie itself is still a very fun watch for what it is. Yes. I still very much enjoy it, even if it is quite disjointed. It's a fun 80s special effects horror movie at the end of the day. It still has a lot that you can enjoy with it. The only thing I will defend Jeannie Joseph on is the title. She did not want to call this Spookies. That was producer Michael Lee. She actually said, um, Michael, you do know spooky is a derogatory term for African Americans, right? <laughs> you can't call it that. And he's like, and eh, no one will notice. <laughs> so I, I, I will give her a little bit of credit for at least not wanting to call it Spookies based on the racial connotation. Although I wouldn't even have thought of that. When I hear spooky, I don't think black person when i hear spooky i think ghost i i yeah i think of uh yeah. goofy goofy skeleton bones and pumpkins and stuff I, I think she's reaching she's being a little too uh virtuous there I, i've never i've never really heard a heard a black person get called a spooky i've heard spook but spooky <laughs> is really more just hey uh, black cats and goblins and shit. 
like, shut up, Genie. Well, on that note, then, I sat and spoke to special effects man for Spookies and many other things, which you'll hear about in the interview, with Al Megliacetti. Like I said, he had a fantastic career. He and I sat and talked for a lot longer than what you hear here. He's got his own thoughts on Spookies, and we also then go into some of the controversy about the documentary, which I'm not going to rehash here. I don't think Michael Gingold did something wrong. I worked for Michael Gingold under when I was working at Fangoria, and I've always found him to be a pretty virtuous guy. I don't really know the director of the documentary. They say they did nothing wrong. There's this scuttlebutt that Al and I talk about a little bit. I don't know if it's true. That's just what's going around the webs. But then we talk about his career, and then we'll be back. With this whole Spookies thing and the whole controversy, or kind of lack thereof, have you been shocked at, other than a couple of minor blow-ups on some Facebook pages, how little controversy about this Spookies thing is? What what specific lie are you referring to? There's, there's many associated with Spookies. Well, okay, specifically the lie the documentary, using that word in quotes, has put out that, that the original ending, the original effects, etc., are lost, and you have them all, and they weren't interested in them. That, I don't know where those guys got that bit of misinformation, but the effects were not lost. They were never completed. Bottom line is, they just ran out of money, and there was no time left. This... Let me see if I can put this into perspective for you. We had four weeks of preparation in the summer of 1984. We were supposed to start shooting for six weeks at the beginning of September of that year. And this thing got so slow pokey and dragged around for so long. We were still there. We didn't leave until a few days before Thanksgiving. There was literally snow on the ground when we finally got out of there. And mind you, there was no heat in this house. There was no, no air conditioning, no nothing. This, this was like a 200 and something year old house that had just kind of been left to the elements. So there were parts of it that were in really bad shape. And we were living there for all this time. What happened after they stopped shooting, I basically had to wait for them to go through at least some of the editorial process. I wound up starting the effects, I believe in, it was, I think it was January of 85. I think we skipped through the holidays and I worked for about a month, which was a really unpleasant snowy winter. And there were literally like days where I couldn't even get to my facility because, you know, there was 10 inches of snow on the road. It just, they, they finally pulled the Pulled the plug in February uh, because I, you know, it wasn't fast enough to suit them. And there was a bit, I mean, basically it worked out to something like they, according to their schedule, I would have had to have turned out something like eight shots a day in order to meet the schedule that they had, which is, you know. Which, which it, for, it, for listeners that don't understand it, that is asinine on the budget you had. It's, it's impossible under any circumstance. I mean, Industrial Light and Magic couldn't have done that with $40 million a day being pumped in. You know, I mean, it, that basically means you're going to take one hour to do a shot, and that's not how visual effects work. Now, since you didn't finish the movie, when you... We'll get back to the second half of the movie, the second half of shooting, you know, the fact that it's like two movies in a minute. When you saw the final work mixed with your work, what were your thoughts on that? <laughs> well... When the VHS tape first came out in, I think it was 1986, a friend of mine was working at a video store and got it the instant it came in. So he brought it over to my place, and I, I basically made sure there were copious amounts of alcohol there, which it turned out we needed, because it was just a total shock. 
an absolute total shock. I could not believe what they had done to what was, you know, a straightforward kind of a haunted house movie. The first 13 minutes of the movie have nothing to do with what we shot, nor, nor the last 13 minutes, curiously. I don't know how they managed to time that out, but literally it's the same amount of time at the beginning and the end that had nothing to do with us. With your name still on it, do you think that this hurt you at all when it came out? Because especially at the time, couldn't differentiate between what you did and what you didn't do. Not really, because nobody really knows what I did. I mean, the only credit I got was special effects photography, which is nothing, really. I mean, they don't they don't give me a supervisor credit. There's no acknowledgement that I helped Gabe Bartalos out with a bunch of the uh, effects handling a lot of the mechanical stuff and I in fact I did let me let me rephrase that. Gabe did most of the mechanical stuff. I helped out on a couple of rigs. I did however do all the weirdo electrical work for like the uh the glowing planchette, the glowing carol dummy, even the eyes on the Grim Reaper were, you know, something that I did. Because there was basically nobody else around to do them. They they had me do all the practical floor effects. In other words, anything physical that was being done on the set, they didn't hire a regular special effects person to do that because they didn't have any money. So they kind of begged and pleaded for me to do it. And I didn't want to. I did have a federal pyro license at the time so I could buy all the pyrotechnic equipment that was needed. But I'm not insured. I'm not bonded. I'm not anything. And I really, really, really felt uncomfortable doing that. But they, they kind of went, please, please, please. And I finally gave in. I certainly didn't get any extra money for it. <laughs> Do you think that with your credit being on the movie itself, there are people who think you did some of the, how shall we put it, less than quality effects that were done after you left? It doesn't really bother me. I mean, it's there's always that possibility, but I don't think it's enough people would make that mistake that it would impact my career or anything like that. It was one of the first features I worked on, so, you know, even some of the stuff I did do isn't exactly up to snuff as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> There was a recent dust-up between you and the director of the documentary on Spookies where he basically accused you of making crap that was unusable, and we both know that that's a lie. You and the director of the documentary, you guys don't get along. Would that be fair? I think it's fair to assume that I don't think he understands exactly what I did on the movie. He never gave me a chance to comment. He never interviewed me for the documentary. When he did find out that I had all this stuff that I basically rescued from being thrown out, he accused me of hoarding it. I shouldn't have it, he said. I should be sharing this with the fans. And I kind of responded, well, you know, that's why I wanted to be in your documentary. Well, because I, I know the documentary has a, has a weird thing. Now, this, isn't all, this is all unofficial, what I'm about to say. But they didn't want you involved because it dis it disturbed the narrative that's the word that i kept hearing that they wanted to go with for the documentary more that this is lost and oh my god it's you know it's it's like these famous lost television pilots or like the original lon cheney london after midnight this is lost oh my god it's such a and then when they find out you have this stuff they kind of went nah we're going with the narrative that this is lost that strikes me as so disingenuous not to just you but to the fans this is kind of the first I've heard of that take on it. So I, if that's what you say, I, all I can say is the only footage that was lost or that I don't know what happened to, I did turn in a bunch of shots of the house glowing, gravestones melting, and a few ghosts flying through the air. There was one shot I did where 
you're kind of at ground level looking up the gravestone into the sky as all this stuff is supposed to be going on with the house exploding. And as the gravestone is melting down toward the camera, I will expose, I think, two or three ghosts being sucked back into the house. I submitted that footage. I don't know whatever happened to it. In, in that respect, some of that is unaccounted for. Whether it's lost or whether it's missing, that I don't know. Stuff I have, though. I have the original models and stuff that I used to create that. Right, which is why you should have, for all intents and purposes, have been contacted about this documentary and the sort of very, very defensive nature that the director and even Michael Gingold took. You don't get that defensive unless you're guilty of something. Does that make sense? Um, that's one particular outlook on it. Again, it's not really for me to say. I did find it kind of curious that the director of the documentary told me as an excuse, well, we had no no way of contacting you, and I'm one of Mike Gingold's Facebook friends, so, you know, I'm right there. Again, I don't want to disparage these guys. I Obviously, they had their reasons for saying what they're saying. I just don't know what they are. Well, then let's just talk about Spookies and its legacy. Now, obviously, you didn't have anything to do with the first and the last, you know, and the end of the movie. When you saw the farting wall muck monsters whatever you want to call them did you just want to sink into your chair i think there had been a lot of alcohol by that point so it was just like i started throwing things that wasn't nearly as much of a shock well maybe equal to the fact that they dubbed my dialogue because i'm also an actor in the movie and i use the term incredibly loosely but most of the stuff that physically comes out of my mouth in that film somebody else with a shall we say somewhat more effeminate voice and i kind of went what Okay, Spookies was a big VHS hit. I mean, I don't know financially how much of a hit, but I know this got passed around a lot. It got rented a lot. Do you think Spookies being your first, you know, major credit, if you will, what do you think of that, that a lot of us grew up watching this movie, even if it might not be the best final film that we ended up seeing? I just wish you guys could have seen what we had in mind, because it was, it made infinitely more sense. And it was a much more cohesive film. You know, for all the problems that we had, Tom, Brendan, and Frank did a pretty good job of what they had in mind. The unfortunate part is what they wrote could not have been filmed for the budget. And that was the big straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know the circumstances behind that. I was originally involved with them for a completely different film called Hellspawn. And when I went to the meeting with them, they, they had a meeting for me. They met with me at the actual location, I think it was. And I saw this big giant house when I'm, when I drove up. And that was the first time I was handed the spooky script. And I kind of went, what the heck is this? Because I was expecting that we were going to be shooting Hellspawn. I had no idea things had changed. And I sat down and I read the script. I, I did a breakdown of the script after the fact. And basically there was something like, 81 effects scenes, and that's not to say there was 81 shots, but between makeup effects, physical effects, stunts, and everything else, there was something like 81 scenes of God knows how many shots apiece. The script itself was only 79 pages, so I mean, there literally, it averaged to more than one effect per page. And I, when I came to the uh, animation stuff, the stop motion and the optical effects and all that stuff, I said, how much do you guys have budgeted for this? And Brendan said, $10,000? He goes, you think it'll be enough? I said, uh, add another zero. And he like literally like sucked in his breath with $100,000? Animation and optical effects and all that stuff is expensive. You know, there's very precision equipment you need for that. And I didn't have it. 
I think for the budget you had, for the time you had, the one thing Spookies was always remembered for some pretty damn ingenious shots, some good effects, the spider lady, the witch with the glowing brain, you got, you know, the the zombies, the ghosts. That's one of the things that always drew us to this movie besides the Richard Corbin cover art. The the effects, we were like, well, the story, eh, the acting, eh. This was the, the movie you went to for just the cool special effects, and yeah, the plot didn't make a lot of sense. Well, most of that you can thank Gabe Bartalis for because he was... A juggernaut. I mean, he took every ch- every challenge that was laid on him and ran with it, which was especially difficult in that he was kind of the runner-up makeup guy. Originally, the film had been started with Arnold Gargiulo, who did some of the effects. At first, they were pretty good, but Arnold started to... It's, it seemed like the more pressure that was put on us, the less satisfactory the work was that he turned in. And it got to... It came to kind of a loggerhead. He actually, when he turned in the designs for the Muckmen, or actually the suits for the Muckmen, there are no words that come to mind. I mean, it was just, what world are you in? Because literally what he did is he took a pair of painter's coveralls, laid them on the ground, splashed latex on them, and stuck what looked like fake broccoli on them, and made some kind of a mask with big buck teeth sticking out of it. And it was so poorly constructed, I should use the term loosely, nobody could even put the garment on. I mean, like literally the front of the pants was stuck to the back because of the latex soaking through. So they had to like literally chisel their way through the pants just to put them on. You went on to many, many larger projects than this. Where does Spookies rest for you? Was this a good hard learning experience for what you would experience later on or was Spookies just one of those times you'd rather forget and just move on well it did kind of show me how unpredictable the industry could be and it also showed me that visual effects guys being the last person on the totem pole and on any production basically get the blame for everything that goes wrong I mean there was a while where Tom Duran blamed me me personally for the screw-ups on Spookies, that that I was the reason the film didn't get done, that I didn't know what I was doing, and he would blog this. There used to be a, a comment section on um, IMDb, and he would go on there under a fake name and like just do these ravings, how incompetent I was and all kinds of stuff like that. And it got to the point where when a few years later I did the movie Brain Damage with Frank Henenlotter and Edgar Ivins, he was running around telling people that I didn't really do the effects because he saw another effects person's name in the credits, whom I basically rented his facility to use his equipment. So it's not that I didn't do the effects. I had enough money to, like, you know, get that expensive equipment that I needed, and I had to credit the guy accordingly, of course. Well, now, we we mentioned that you had a much larger career. I personally, I know you've done stuff like Terminator 2 and things like that. I personally want to talk to you a little bit about two of my favorite shows that nobody remembers, Friday the 13th, the series, and War of the Worlds, the series. Now, obviously, those were shot up in Canada. What was the difference from going from Spookies to, say, Friday the 13th, the series, a relatively big-budget Paramount production? Well, let me touch on Terminator 2 just for a second. My work on Terminator 2 was, I actually came out to Los Angeles to work on Terminator 2. That was the reason I actually switched from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was one of these things where they kept, because of the flux in the schedule, they couldn't hire me right away. So I'm kind of out here burning through money sitting in a hotel, and I wound up taking another job, which was the dark half. 
with, as a matter of fact, Pete Curran, the guy whose optical equipment I rented to do brain damage, the one I was speaking about a minute ago. As it turned out, I got so busy on the dark half and the Adams family, which was going on at the same time, when Terminator 2 finally called me, I could only give them a couple of weeks worth of work while they found somebody to take my place because I just there was just no time left anymore. I was I was busy on other on other stuff. So I worked on the future war sequence for Terminator Two, but that was about it. Well, funny thing, the producers of the Friday the thirteenth series basically played it cheap. They were shooting it up there under the title of Friday's Curse. According to them, they had no money. I didn't make my deal. I didn't know what the rates were in Canada at the time. So I had a I had a co-supervisor with me, a gentleman named Michael Lennick, who just passed away a year or so ago. I had him make my deal because he was Canadian. He'd worked with these guys before, and I figured, all right, just I said, get me whatever you're getting. You know, we're co-supervisors. So I packed up my apartment, went up to Canada, had my suitcases in my hand, and that's when I found out that I was being paid the princely sum of something like six hundred and fifty dollars a week to work on this Paramount TV show. Canadian, by the way. So it was something closer to the, I think it would have been like $450 US, which really wasn't much more than I was getting on Spookies. And I kind of thought that was a little bit weird. And we came to find out later that from what I am told, and I don't have any proof of this, that supposedly the producers were invoicing Paramount $4,000 a week for each of us, American, and pocketing the difference. And when we confronted them on this, Mr. Lennick and I, we were both uh, fired. This is unfortunately not that rare of a story. If you've ever looked up the story, I think it's called the unfortunate, the unfortunate story of Once Bitten, the Jim Carrey movie, the writer of Once Bitten was paid $2,000 for the script. The producer was given $10,000 to give to the script, but because this was just a, a novice guy who didn't know he should be getting more, the producer kept the other eight grand and screwed him over. So this is unfortunately not a rare kind of story. Oh, I've since learned that, believe me. Uh, it was just kind of new to me at the time. Was it the same thing when you went to War of the Worlds, also another Paramount production? Actually, I heard, and again, don't quote me on this, I don't know how true it is, but they changed showrunners between the first and second season, and I had heard that the first showrunner was let go because he was caught skinning. I don't know this for a fact. I'm just basically saying what I heard. As far as War of the Worlds, I, I technically was not on their payroll. I was working at a facility in, uh, in Toronto called Light and Motion, which was kind of like a mini industrial light and magic. And they'd done... A few things. They they done some features and they were doing some TV shows. And I was assigned to work on a basically a kids show with Jerry O'Connell called My Secret Identity. And they brought me into the country because I had there was there was some skill supposedly I was an expert at. I forgot what it was that that somebody up there couldn't really do. That was technically the only way they could give an American a job on a Canadian show. So I was brought in for that, but. While I was working on that show, there was a lot of effects on War of the Worlds as well. So they, whenever I was, whenever I had some downtime, I jumped on War of the Worlds. And at one point, Secret Identity had basically run through its effects budget, and I wasn't really given any work to do anymore. But I still had a contract, so they they basically kept me busy by putting me on War of the Worlds and doing some of that stuff. Did you ever pick what you wanted to do at this point? Like, like when you did Prom Night Three. I didn't want to do it. I, I basically, I was up at Light and Motion. I'd gotten Frankenhooker as a job by that point. The company Light and Motion was kind of 
in a bad financial situation at the time. And I had a relatively decent budget for Frankenhooker. So I called them up and said, you know, basically, I've got this much money. I've got to do this many shots. Can I rent the facility? And they kind of thought they had an idiot on their hands because I said, you know, I'll do everything myself. I have no problem doing it. Um, I'm just going to need, like, you know, this equipment, that equipment, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, you know, we're a union shop, so you have to have our guys shoot your footage. You know, you can't actually work the camera. It's like, okay, fine, I'll be politically correct, whatever you need. And we worked out the arrangements. I went up to Canada. I started doing Frankenhooker. And they were just literally sitting back gleefully waiting for me to say, oh, geez, I need more help. Oh, God, I can't do all this. Meanwhile, I'm basically racing through this footage. And they went, sat back and went, what? And they literally came up to me and went, why didn't you tell us you could do this? I said, I tried. You guys didn't want to listen to me. You, you know, you thought I was just some stumble bum. And they were flabbergasted. I actually did a scene in Prom Night 3. The main evil girl walks through the bars of a jail cell pretty similarly to Terminator 2 years before that even happened. It was a simple little rotoscope effect, and they, they just, like, fell out of their chairs when they saw it. They had entire crews that they were paying that would take days and days to do stuff that I could do in literally two hours. I'm not exaggerating. There was one episode of War of the Worlds where the... Uh, they had a Martian warship that got struck by lightning, and the artist went in and traced the spaceship frame after frame, page after page for the entire shot. It must have been like, oh, God, 60 or 70 drawings at least. And the lightning hit the, hit the spaceship for like, you know, 10 frames. And then a lightning is just, you know, it, when you're drawing it, when you're doing effects animation, a lightning is just like a squiggly line. So I would just literally, when I do this kind of stuff, I go in there and just like draw the squiggly line. I'm done. This guy was a traditional animator. He didn't know any other way. So infinitely longer to do that shot than I could have. And they, they just freaked out when they saw how simplistic my approach was because I'm used to low budget stuff. I know how to like just grease things through and get it to look right. And see, th that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because this is something you hear from not just effects guys, but directors and things like that. Like all of those people that came up under Roger Corman, like James Cameron specifically, Terminator, the first film, could not have been done on the budget he had if he hadn't have used all the stuff he learned from Roger Corman. When you come up with nothing, I've always said it forces you to be more creative. Absolutely. You now, at this point in your career, you've been working on relatively low-budget things, maybe some high-budget TV shows. You're about to step into a bigger-budget world with The Rocketeer and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Terminator 2 and things like that. How different was that world from the one you had come from? When you're working at large effects facilities, you have the comfort in knowing that Number one, you've got a lot of support. And number two, everything you need is always going to be there. The tricks for doing those kinds of effects, they're not complicated. I mean, there, there are some techniques for certain shots that do require a lot of work and ingenuity and that kind of stuff. But for the kind of stuff I was doing specifically, it's more like a, for lack of a better term, a cut and paste. Let me ask you sort of a nerd kind of question about yourself. You obviously are a fan of, of all of the, you know, the movies, monster movies, sci-fi movies. Did you ever nerd out just a little bit when all of a sudden, you know, you're working on a Star Trek film or you're meeting James Cameron or John Carpenter or something like that? The nerd moment came when I had to go down and supervise on the set of Star Trek VI. And I'm working directly no pun intended, with the director, Nicholas Meyer. And he and I would have these powwows and, you know, discuss the effects and stuff like that. And my instructions 
from my boss were basically get out of the way and let them do what they want. Don't don't interfere. They didn't want that. They would come up and try to consult with me. And I and I you know I'm trying to keep my mouth shut, but they they basically said, yeah, no, we we need your advice. Like, what do you want to do here? At that point, it started getting really interesting. The high point of it being at one point, Leonard Nimoy and Nicholas Meyer got into a difference of opinion on how to work a particular sequence. And it was something that took place in the galley on Star Trek VI. And Leonard wanted to do it one way, and Nick wanted to do it the other way. One of my shots, it was a phaser shot, was literally right in the middle of the sequence they were debating. And they're, I mean, there's voices raised and everything. They're kind of going at it. And I stupidly like went up between them and said, um, gentlemen, if I can interject, uh, thing you're talking about, here's this effect shot that's going in the middle of it. And it occurs to me if we flip this around and shoot it from this angle instead of the storyboarded angle, that'll give you what you want, Mr. Nimoy, and that'll give you, Mr. Meyer, what you want. Nick Meyer just kind of blinked and looked at me and Leonard just snapped, fine, do that and walked away. So we did. So that would be the nerd moment. You, you, you didn't you didn't feel anything like that with the notoriously difficult James Cameron or the notoriously moody John Carpenter? I didn't do anything with John Carpenter, did I? Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Oh, I'm sorry. That was all right. That was an assigned job up at up at Industrial Light and Magic. I was just given shots to do when I was working on Star Trek VI, and I had no dealings with him whatsoever. You know, animate this stuff on this building. Okay. A friend of mine that worked at K&B worked on Super Mario Brothers by building all the Yoshis, but he did that in Los Angeles and just shipped them to the set, so he never, you know, met with all the chaos that Super Mario Brothers, the movie, was known about. People ask him when they see his credit, hey, what it was like, were they really, the director's really this crazy? He's like, I don't know, I was in L.A. shooting Army of Darkness. With Mr. Cameron, there was, I mean, I've heard all the stories as well, and the only comment I can make on that is, on the sequence I worked on, the Future War sequence, they did a lot of extra work basically tracing stuff to give him flexibility on where and when he wanted to put the light rays coming in, the destruction rays from the uh, from the hunter killer. So rather than just going in and drawing the beams, which is what we would normally do, they wound up tracing everything in every frame of every shot in that sequence in three layers. And that would give Jim the capability of moving the, uh, the rays around or putting them in different places because all the, uh, all the cutoff mats that, that would basically make the beams not double exposed would be already there and in place. So it gave him a lot of flexibility. But, you know, in his defense, that's the kind of stuff you find on a big budget movie. If they, if they don't have time to figure, sit down and figure everything out. At the moment, they give themselves, you, you, they spend a little extra money to make things more flexible so they can deal with it later. That's par for the course. Was it any different working for like Charles Band on Trancers and, or something like that? Charlie's a hoot. I, I like Charlie. I've interviewed him a few times. I like, uh, we at this show are very huge Empire and Full Moon fans. As am I. Charlie's kind of fun to work for. He's, I, you know, I've heard stories about him being difficult with money and stuff like that i personally have never experienced it there were some times where he would do things where he he wasn't quite aware of how expensive it would be and found out too late and you know would nearly have a meltdown for example we did a film with him and gabe bartellis in fact did the makeup effects on it called the creeps back in uh mid 90s sometime and it was about little little people who were like monsters who were little people 
there was basically a, a spell that were, or sort of a scientific technique that would draw these monsters like Dracula and the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman out of the original books that they were based on, except the guy who did it screwed up and they all came back as like dwarves. And the complication in that movie was that Charlie wanted to, was shot it in 3D, not realizing that to scan film was pretty expensive at the time. It was like $3 a frame in and then $3 a frame out. So Charlie would do these really, really long takes because a 3D camera is a little more difficult to set up. So they, they basically, you know, do longer sequences. So it shortens their shooting day. That too is not unusual. I actually, to, to go back and on, on a totally different tangent, I was Vincent Price's driver for a couple of days and we had some conversations about House of Wax and he would tell me, like, well, the, the goddamn camera was so huge. We couldn't move it around. So we had to do these very, very long shots. That hasn't changed. You know, it's it's just one of these things where you maximize the time, you have very long takes, so you don't have to do as many camera setups. The problem was with Charlie, he didn't leave himself any coverage, in other words, alternate angles that you could cut in to those longer shots, and he couldn't afford to scan the entire shot. So if something was like two minutes long, for example, which they were, and the effect is only in five seconds of it, that's an awful lot of waste if you're going to keep the shot intact. So I had to work with him and his editors to basically put some kind of a flash at the beginning and end of each shot so they could make a cut from their footage to my footage so we wound up not having to scan the whole thing. And it saved him, like, thousands of dollars doing it that way. When it comes to you looking at the movies you've worked on, though, sometimes you're assigned work, as you said. Sometimes it's a project maybe you're pursuing. But what about when when you, when you see the final product? Are you ever, and I'm not talking about your effects, are you ever not happy that, you know, in a Spookies-type situation where you're like, well, I'm proud of my effects, but that movie was shit? Well, the thing is, you never know what circumstances the rest of the company is operating under. There's always, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. You know, so there's either financial reasons or timing situations. I, I kind of, an, I don't know if this will get us into an argument or not. I think Jason Goes to Hell is one of the worst horror films I've ever seen. And every time I see Adam Marcus in an interview, I want to punch the guy because he's so arrogant about how great of a movie he thinks he made. And it, it literally hurts my brain how bad Jason Goes to Hell is. Not going to get us into a fight because everybody's got their own opinion. Every film, regardless of how good or bad it is, people who lionize it and people who despise it. I can't tell you how many arguments I get in people for, you know, hating classics. I'm not a big fan of Bride of Frankenstein. Everybody loves it. I think it sucks. <laughs> I can't stand the thing. I mean, the first Frankenstein movie was so dark and brooding and bleak. And this one starts out with, like, these little, like, midget experiment people, like, running around and, and causing goofiness and trying to get into it to get laid. It was just, it's, it's not the same kind of movie. Uh, as far as Jason Goes to Hell, uh, you know, I... I don't really have an opinion on it other than I thought it was a little too close to the hidden. They claim they they did not see that movie at that time. So it probably is a total coincidence. There was some stuff in it. They, they actually cut out a lot of the kind of boogity-looking monsters that K&B did and tightened up the ending quite a bit. There was a beautiful miniature that Bob Kurtzman and, and some of the other people did, which we unfortunately had to cut out of the movie because the cinematographer screwed it up. Bob and I were in the middle of shooting it, and we had what's called a pitching lens, uh, um, which is, it's kind of like, it's a lens where the front element of the lens actually tilts at an angle, so you get a very weird kind of a focus. Rather than being like a flat focus that just travels from front to back, you could actually get 
uh, like different layers, different planes, I should say, in focus by tilting or angling that front element of the lens various ways, left or right or up or down. So we had this miniature set up in front of the forest set on Jason Goes to Hell. And it was basically Jason being grabbed from below by demons, I think, or something like that. They did a beautiful mechanical Jason. We set it up in front of the actual set so that the trees and everything were in focus and the miniature was in focus because of this pitching lens. And just as we were about to shoot it after like a four-hour setup, the cinematographer came over and basically told us we didn't know what we were doing and he was going to do it his way. Now, mind you, this guy had never, ever shot that in his life, let alone with specific kind of lenses like this. And I started to protest and I'm not, I'm not the calmest person as anybody who's swimming can tell you. So I started blowing my stack. The production designer said, let him do it his way. He's a cinematographer. And I'm just sputtering like, but he's, I know it's wrong. He wound up shooting the thing, something like six stops underexposed. So we watched the dailies the next day and, uh, you know, it's, it's dark. It's really dark. Like you couldn't see what was going on. And he went, oh man, no, the lab printed it wrong. This is, it's going to look fine. It's going to be fine. And Sean Cunningham looked at him and said, you tell me exactly how you want to print it. I'll have the lab do that. And they did. It was, there was basically no information on the film. He had shot it so black, there was nothing there. And Sean looked at me and said, can you do anything with this? I said, nope. I said, if anything, we're going to have to reshoot it. He's like, okay. You know, time and money did not permit. The miniature got junked and it never got reshot. Do you ever go back and watch some of the movies that you looked at? I mean, I mean, I mean like pull a DVD off the shelf and be nostalgic and say, I want to go watch Trancers 4, Jack of Swords, just because? Not that particular one. <laughs> I, th that was just an example. Uh, okay, uh, one of the subspecies movies then, or something good. You know, honestly, with with Trancers Four, Tim Thomerson is wonderful. I love working with him. I had a very good experience working with David Nutter. Nobody really wanted to be in Romania shooting that movie, and having worked in Romania myself a few years later, I'm totally with them. I, you know, I understand. But there are some movies that I. It's not that I go out of my way to watch my own stuff again. I mean, that, it sounds a little egotistical to even say that. If something's on TV, I may, I may stop and watch and, you know, point stuff out to either my girlfriend or friends or whoever happens to be around. In fact, Adam's family was on, I think, HBO the other day. I was showing her all the stuff I did at the beginning of the movie with Thing running around and, you know, coming out from behind the clock and skidding along the floor and all that stuff. I mean, that was one of my first jobs in Los Angeles, and I was, I'm very proud of that one. I did, I think... I think I did 70 or 80% of the thing shots in that movie. I didn't do all of them, but I did most of them. How is it different going from like a genre flick, a sci-fi movie, a horror movie, to something like working on Free Willy 2 or French Kiss or a romantic comedy or a cop sh or a cop movie or something like that? How is that different for what you have to do versus it's aliens and monsters, which is sort of, you know, the, the, the pool you like to play in from what I can tell? Technically, it's no different at all. Um, you know, you, you have to obviously understand the perspective of what the shots are going to be put into. That's part of the game regardless because, I mean, you could do the best shot in the world. It could look grumptious. It could have all the bells and whistles. But if it doesn't fit into the other shots around it, it's useless. You haven't done your job. You know, having a good idea of what's going on and how you have to fit it in. I'll give you an example. I did a few shots on the Cider House Rules, which is about as far away from horror as you can get. And I had to do one of the establishing shots, which had a it had a huge steam train in the shot, and we had to re completely replace the background. This was in uh, 1998, before we... I mean, the computers were still 
were coming in, but they weren't really solidified yet with what they could do. So we had to make a complete digital landscape and all that fun stuff. And I was on the location in Vermont, I think it was, and I went up to the director and said, what kind of feeling are we going to perceive here? What, what, what kind of an emotion do you want to evoke? And he said, sadness. I went, okay, that's what I want to know. And, you know, proceeded accordingly. We made it nice and cloudy and kind of bleak and, and cold looking. And that's exactly what he wanted. What I did learn, however, is I have to remember that I'm not working on a horror movie because at one point on the set, it got a little chilly. I put on a sweatshirt that had this big, gory, bleeding eyeball and stuff like that. And the producer came up to me and kind of went, can you turn that shirt inside out? You're kind of disturbing some people. I went, oh, sorry. Did you ever have problems with like any, like when on Miss Congeniality, I, I know you probably were after the fact, but like, did you ever run into someone like Sandra Bullock or something like that? And you were like, I did such and such effect in your movie. Sandra actually talked about me non-specifically on the commentary track of that movie, because when Sandra's working on some stuff, she, she gets so nervous. Sometimes she breaks out and I had to go in and do a zit removal. She had this huge zit right in the middle of her forehead in a few scenes. And I'm not telling tales out of school because, she, like I said, she talks about this on the soundtrack. And she said how, you know, these guys, quote unquote, went in and like, you know, cleaned up her complexion. How does that make you feel when you hear stuff like that, even if she didn't name drop you? It was fine, except for the fact that she said we were really expensive, which, again, was not me. It was I, I kind of an employee on that job. So. As you said before, the boss is keeping the big chunk of the money. I'm getting paid a day rate, so part of the course. Well, then, since you've done high-budget stuff, low-budget stuff, and you've kind of ebbed and flowed, uh, you, you did some of the digital work on my friend Natalie Popovich's show, Macabre Theater, and I don't know if you ever met Nat, but she is one of the nicest Oh, I see Nat all the, the time. World. She's wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. Oh, she, she is absolutely fantastic. What's it like ebbing and flowing between big budget, low budget, big budget, low budget? Like, what, which world would you prefer to live in? You know, it's kind of a loaded question because a lot of times on a lower budget job, they'll be grateful to anything you give them and you, like, literally have to ask them, like, is there anything you want to change? Do you want to tweak this? Do you want to play with it a little bit? And you ha you kind of have to almost force them to say, well, you know, that could be a little better right there. At which point, okay, fine, I'll go do that. Whereas on big-budget jobs, they do what we call pixel f***ing. And I know you're going to bleep that out, so I'll say it again, pixel what that is, is they, because you're, you're being paid a little better, they will go in and make you change every blessed thing. Differences you would never, ever, ever see. And they expect you to just do these revisions for free. And it could be something as like, well, you know, the background needs to be like, you know, a quarter of an F-stop darker. And you're like, who's going to see a quarter of an F-stop? It's it's like almost imperceptible. Plus the fact that the film is going to go through a final color timing where they balance all the shots anyway. So any any minor minor little tweak like that is is fixable later on. But they it's kind of a sign of they know they've made a bad movie, but they want to tweak every single little thing to their satisfaction, and that way you know they feel better about having done everything they possibly could. And this isn't just me. This goes on with everyone. I heard stories from the visual effects supervisor of Tron where, where Disney was screaming about certain kinds of shots. They didn't like them. They didn't work. They didn't do this and didn't do that. And they would put the film on the shelf 
shoot a new slate for it and then show it to the exact same film to the executives again with the new slate and they went oh that's much better have you ever thought that some of the decisions that have been made you know the orders that you've been given of how they want something to look or whatnot where you just kind of ask yourself why are these people in charge because i can't say who it was but i i knew an effects guy who worked on the never aired dark man tv series you know there's that pilot out there that fox mm-hmm. made and he there was about a dozen different mask designs you know for the burn makeup and everything and he said when when the fox executives came in every time each one of the executives picked the absolute worst looking one and that's the one that they decided that they wanted to use and everyone in the effects shop was basically why are these people executives i can't say i haven't had experiences like that because i have it's always a crapshoot i mean you know bottom line is they're the ones signing your checks so if you stick by your guns and are adamant about it sometimes Yes, you can get them to change your mind if you're very political about it. Other kind, other times, if you're perceived to be difficult in any way, then all of a sudden you get a bad reputation and you're, you know, you're impossible to work with. So it's really tricky. I mean, that's, that's a dicey situation to be in. Working on a film that was taking place in South America and the director was from Argentina. I had a very simple shot to do in the, in the movie because it took place over the course of, I think, a month or whatever. They had a shot of a full moon. You know, very simple. Just point the camera at the sky, shoot the full moon. And they wanted to reuse it earlier in the film when when the moon is in a different phase, so they wanted me to do a half moon. This is probably, this would have been 1996-ish, I think, to put it in perspective. So, okay, no big deal. Go in there and, you know, just kind of put a shadow over part of the moon, make it really dark and do all that stuff. The director was in, I think, Italy at the time doing a, doing the film's score, which they screwed up badly. That's a whole other story. But he's in Italy, and he calls me, and he wants to see my progress on the shot. I said, okay, give me, you know, I'll, I'll pop a frame off from what we've got and reduce it to a good size, and I can email it to you. And he said, no, we're, we, you know, we, we don't have a good phone connection here. This will tell you how long that was. We don't have a good phone connection here. Uh, so, we, you know, email is kind of unpredictable. He goes, fax it to me. And I'm like, fax it? Fax a nice, subtle, gray moon thing with, in, into, like, a black and white fax? He said, yeah, that, that'll be fine. Like, okay. I faxed it. I printed out, you know, I printed out the frame. I faxed it over. It looked like absolute garbage, of course. I get this call screaming and ranting, like, how horrible it is. What's wrong with me? You know, you have to fix that. I said, let's let's wait till you come back and you can take a look at it. And I showed him the exact same footage in normal form. And he's like, oh, that's fine. That's that's so much better. Yes, I, I you, you did beautifully. So, yeah, this is the kind of stuff you have to deal with on occasion. Failing upwards. There is a lot of that. There, There is, in fact, a makeup effects supervisor right now who's out there that fans love this guy. I've known this guy since he was, I think, 20. And he's like kind of an idiot. But, you know, he keeps falling upward and, you know, he's producing TV shows now and everybody thinks he's a god. And what they what they don't realize is this guy doesn't do any of the work. He just he hires people who can do some good stuff and then, you know, slaps his name on it as a supervisor. I'm not going to say who I think it is, but I think I know who you're talking about. Let's just leave it at that. So then the last question I was going to ask you was about the state of special effects today. Do you look at something 
like when you see a TV show or a movie today that you didn't work on, do you kind of go, oh my God, how is that permittable? Because a, a friend of mine who it was a makeup effects guy said he gets absolutely infuriated when he would watch the sci-fi channel show Face Off when he said these people are being praised for their makeup and if I turned in that work, I would have been fired. If I turned in that quality of work, I'd have been fired and these people are being praised for it. Well, in the case of Face Off, you have to keep in mind that the idea is to sell a TV show. You know, it's it's kind of like newspapers. Like, you have to have a headline that's going to grab you. Nobody wants to see a headline that says, eh, it's another nice day, nothing happened. You know, you want to see Peruvian airliners collide or something like that. Otherwise, you're not going to pay attention. Same thing with a show like Face Off, kind of a documentary thing. It's completely skewed in the editing to enhance the drama and all that stuff. And it's specifically engineered for things like what you're describing, where inferior work is praised just to get a rise out of the audience. That's all planned. It's all, it's all premeditated. You know, what are they going to say? Wow, that sucks. Well, if they, you know, if they're that nasty about it, nobody's going to watch anymore. All that stuff, especially in documentaries, like I said, is all very, very meticulously thought out. I know, I know they have narratives, as you know, we discussed with the Spookies thing, but it, it just, but my friend said, you know, the winners of this contest, he said, I would have been fired if I turned in work like that, and they just won, you know, $50,000 for, you know, stuff I could have turned out in, you know, in less than a day. Well, you know, I, I frequently have thoughts like that when I see stuff put out by, let's say, the Asylum. You know, where some of these movies, you just go like, what did you have? Like, you know, two hours and an old Amiga computer to do that stuff? Or the, uh, have you seen the, the Dario Argento Dracula movie with some of basically 90s CD-ROM special effects in a, like, 2015, 2016 movie? To me, that's just unforgivable. I've stayed away from that one purposely. I've heard so many bad things about it. I can't bring myself to watch That's it. That's probably a good choice. I may at some point when, when, you know, some night when I have nothing to do and, again, copious amounts of alcohol are flowing. You know, for the time being, life's too short. <laughs> okay, then, to end this, how would you sum up your career? W- would you would you sum up your career as you you, you made it? Or you had to work for every single thing that you did and nobody handed you anything? Uh, more the latter, but I would say that I haven't even gotten started. Uh, I originally got into effects to make my own films look better. Because I started, I studied writing and directing. When I was in film school, that was the original intent. And I started doing effects to make my own films look cooler than anybody else's. And I thought I could bring that strategy out into the real world. And it worked for a while. But just when it got to the point where I was doing things like Jason Goes to Hell, and I could, you know, sell my services to producers as, you know, being able to do all these effects for dirt cheap, if I direct the movie... Everything changed when computers came in, and all of a sudden, I knew nothing, and I had to go back to the bottom and learn it all over again. I haven't done anything yet. This is this has all been preliminary. As, as impressive as the titles may look, and as cool as some of the visuals may be, to to me, it's kind of a prequel. You know, I've got a lot of stuff that I've both written and I've been pitching out there, and hasn't been made yet. But there are nibbles, so we'll see how it goes. You know, when when listening to some of these people make their excuses or tell their backstories, there's always a myriad of viewpoints. You know, you can't take one person's perspective, even mine, out of context and say that's the real story because generally speaking, it's a combination of all the perspectives. That's really the truth. 
What do you think about everyone going gaga over this Spookies documentary? I'm a little disappointed because it doesn't tell the whole story. You know, I I basically had been working with Arrow Video for the last two years on and off. They are the ones who discovered four cans of what they thought to be the original negative in a vault over in the UK. And it was actually labeled Twisted Souls, not Spookies, which is why it caused so much of an interest. They they called me up immediately and told me about this. And I called Brendan Faulkner, who thought, the director, who thought this was it could possibly be the original footage because as far as he knew spookies as it now stands had never been called twisted souls in any of the lab roles whether this particular dvd came from or pardon me blu-ray came from that those roles of negative or whatever it was i don't know i have no idea there's apparently some very mysterious backstory that i am not privy to somehow vinegar syndrome got everything away from arrow and I, I have heard from somebody at Arrow they're not happy about it. But again, I'm not the person involved with it. I don't know anything about it. I just kind of know there's some weird feelings going on there. But as far as the document, as far as the documentary is concerned, you're definitely not getting the whole story with the documentary. That's the one thing I can say for certain. So after listening to Al's side of what happened with Spookies, does that make this movie better or worse? Let's leave the Jeannie Joseph stuff aside for right now. Okay, we bashed her enough. Just looking at the movie, with everything that went wrong, I actually kind of think Spookies is a triumph for being as good as it is. Even with the disjointed editing and how... uh inconsistent a lot of it is it's still a really really fun movie to watch it's got some great effect scenes man i, I mean i'm not just sucking al's dick <laughs> here but i love i love the spider and the glowing witch and the- i don't know why that grim reaper has always looked great now the me. grim reaper is so cool with like the glowing red eyes and stuff yeah this is cool. the thing though i mean it was such a you look in a film that had such a limited budget but the talent was there and that's all you really need when you're gonna make something like this especially in something with this scope you think like i mean that like one of the original intentions for the film was is a monster in every room. And like when you look at the film, even with the Genie Joseph stuff that's wrapped around it, you do get like a hell of a lot of monsters. You're going to get mm. a bang for your buck with this film. And you can't say that like, you know, like with everything that Al did, I mean, there's, there's, it's just dripping with talent. I yeah. mean, I, I'd be hard pressed to think today. If you said to a group of people, right, we're going to make a film, here's the budget, and we're going to have a practical effect of a witch, a practical effect of death, a practical effect of a giant spider, and the gremlin things, like, who <laughs> the hell could even, like, pull this off? Who do you think could just, but, like, you look at that, and I think it's just a triumph of talent. Oh, absolutely. This is definitely a guy that you can see why he went as far as he did. You can see why he worked with him and Lauder, uh, why he was called in for Terminator 2, even though he, he only did the future, future War scenes, but those are great scenes in Terminator 2. Yeah. He obviously added a lot of a lot of awesome stuff to it. This is a guy with a ton of talent, and it would be great to see the actual completed film, but what we got, even under the circumstances, is still a really fun, memorable little 80s monster creature flick. Like, it's it's a cool film. I just think with this, with everything that's going on with, like, the Blu-ray release, I think it's just a shame they just, they didn't reach out to him. That's definitely shady that they're kind of, uh, I believe it was, um, they, they want to go more with the narrative that they knew that it, contacting the guy that, like, 
actually knows where yeah. the footage is. Where the footage is. Yeah, no, it's, it's bizarre because the, the way I met Al was I actually um, was told that someone had, like he had a copy of the original script and then we become friends. And I mean, mm-hmm. he's a really just nice go-to guy. And when I made the Nightwaves music video, I needed glowing eyes for the creatures in it. I, I just asked him, like, how would you do this? And he sent over a whole like technical document about this is how you do it. This is how we did it in the 80s. This is how you do it now. Oh, and then cool. as we become, yeah, I know he's a really nice guy. And as we become friends um he started showing me shots of uh original entities like the composite shots of the ghouls and the ghost things that were supposed to come out of the graves or optical effects so i knew he had this stuff when uh vinegar syndrome sent an email like oh black friday releases and it's like spookies so okay I, I didn't know about this. this is something new to me and i sent it to wow like did you know about this it's like i had no idea and i was literally the first person that told him that the the the, the, the blu-ray of a film he'd worked on existed <laughs> with this extensive documentary and behind the scenes. It's like, but they, why didn't they contact you? You, you oh, basically weird. have the ending of the movie. Because and he was where talking with, um, with Arrow for a release, wasn't he? Yeah. Because there's been a couple of times Arrow actually dug out the film vo- uh, vaults. I think it was an MGM vault. Um, three cans of film that were labeled as Twisted Souls a couple of years ago. And it all kind of got a bit exciting. Like they found it. It's it. And then it just died down. Then all of a sudden, the, the trail with Arrow went dead. And it was like, it was just out there. Like, no one no one knew. Like, Al didn't know. There's other people on the production that didn't know. And it was just like, Vinegar Syndrome, we've got it. They're releasing it. It's coming out now. Order now. I oh, know. So it kind of started. It's very, it was very uh, opportunistic of Vinegar Syndrome to do that. They kind of took someone else's, seems like they took someone else's hard work and they're kind of championing it. Championing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I really believe so, in a way. And I think, he, I think it's a shame, because um, one of the excuses... I mean, like, there's been, like, a few dust-ups on the face on the Facebook pages of Spookies and everything. Mm-hmm. But one of their... Um, we like to keep our projects secret. <laughs> that is not... <laughs> what kind of excuse is that? That's like, all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, there's a new Nightmare on Elm Street Blu-ray release. Sorry, Robert England, we've got to talk to you about that. <laughs> Never mind. Like, we, don't, we don't really need your input on this one. It's fine. It's just like, what oh the hell? Oh, my God. Because the thing is, with Spookies, it is the special effects special effects men that they're, they're kind of like the stars of the film you don't think mm. of the actors you think wow like like we're saying the spider the witch and so on and it's just like yeah they're, they're the guys you would go to immediately to talk about this stuff exactly this this guy's a pretty like we've, we've talked about some of the things that he's done he's he's even done movies i don't really like very much like he's he did the effects i believe for jason goes to hell which is a crap yeah. film absolutely awful film but the effects are amazing. It's really, yeah. really great looking effects in that movie. He did the effects for Free Willy 2. That doesn't mean <laughs> I have to like the movie, you know? That's so random. <laughs> it just shows you this is a guy that's been like in the industry, really well regarded guy for many years, and you're not gonna include him in the documentary? Like that's vinegar syndrome, you 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 done a you done a shit. I know, like, it, it made me laugh like when I heard the interview and and you said, Oh yeah, so uh, you worked with John Carpenter. Oh, yeah, did I? Oh, yeah, Memoirs <laughs> yeah, of an Invisible Man. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just such a humble guy about this stuff. I mean, he's so approachable. And, like, from my past experience, just helping out on a project, like, can you tell me how to do this? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> of course, if they went to him, they, 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 they surely 
he would have just turned around and done this. And, you know, like contact's been made since. And like you're saying, it's just, it's just very sketchy, which is a shame because I think, I think the disc is definitely worth buying, to, you know, to help support Spookies, even if in fact in the future we get like a twisted souls cut. But mm. I think having him involved, it would have added that bit much, that bit more just to oh, have exactly. that extra stuff on there. Yeah, definitely. See, I, I, here's my thing on this. I know Michael Gingold and I know Michael Gingold is a straight shooter. He's told mm. me that there was no, no, you know, narrative pushing or anything, that it was time and, you know, money and stuff like that. I really want to believe that because I know Gingold is, I know Gingold is a straight shooter. I don't know Alan Bailey. This is a total conspiracy. (laughs) Well, I, I, I don't know, I don't know the director, so I can't speak to him, but I do know Gingold and I will defend Gingold a little bit, but yeah, them not contacting Al. There was also a couple other people who did not get contacted that are a little ticked off. It just seems like this documentary was not whether whether there was a conspiracy or not. It was not handled properly. No, that it I think no. none of none no. of us can deny this was not handled right. Although producer Frank Farrell does say it more or less tells the story properly. I've only really seen like the VHS rip of it. I I kind of wish it was handled by um by Arrow because they 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 were wanting to do it first, and I feel like they're. From what I'm, from what I've been seeing from their releases, they, they are one of the better, what would you call it, I guess, uh, preservationalists of, uh, of old film and the way they clean it up and they, they get everybody interviewed, like, like their release for Microwave Massacre was amazing, like they got everybody. They got yeah, literally they everybody. Yeah, they really did. It's awesome. Microwave Massacre and you get, like, <laughs> they, got like, oh, no. oh, they, they got everybody to come everyone, in. Yeah. <laughs> for, for a movie like that so it's like yeah you really wish that they they could have handled spookies instead that vinegar syndrome left al out of this thing but yeah still i'll still watch the uh hd release and and hopefully at some point we'll we'll get a a proper faithful especially because because al you know deserves a uh, in his own right for being as, as talented as an effects artist as he is. And it really is a shame that he's, he's left out of something that, you know, was such a, such a big part of his, uh, career starting out as like, as an effects artist, you know, from his like earlier work. So it's, it's just really, really unfortunate that it had to go down that way. No, it's totally true. And I mean, when you, you I mean, you gotta break these things down. I mean, we, we sit there and we just watch these things. It's just like, we love these films to be working on. I mean, like I've spoke to him and he said like working on that shoot and pulling that giant spider around, it was like that. F- giant spider like like it was just like the burden of his life doing this working on these things <laughs> for all this time and just to have just that reward of like years like someone going oh yeah it was worth it you're included in this thing we know you were there we we appreciate mm. what you've done and you're a talented person from it it's, it would, i completely understand why you know like he, he he's pissed with this well, like, yeah, like, like he, he should be included on the thing yeah because it's he totally deserves to be there put in many hours on set working on this stuff and yeah like any anybody would be pissed off about that yeah you, know, you, you, you want the recognition for your work talk to more people you should do because like you know like as soon as it's released everyone's like oh yeah i've got the ending i've got this it's like what it's fuck? such like, a crappy excuse like they're just really so they're trying to shovel it under the yeah. carpet right like oh, yeah. oh well we're, we're trying to keep it secret no you weren't <laughs> shut up from it like for, from this now more people will come out and a future edition of it will have everything else that was missing from this one then what is the future of spookies because is is the future of spookies going to be one of those movies that gets made fun of 
or is this going to be one of those movies that becomes a cult classic? I don't know if it's a cult classic now because I think yeah, it's on the it's on the borders. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's kind it's kind of I think it is. I think it's a cult classic that's growing. I'm going to quote my friend Mr. Lobo: "Mainstream fades, cult lasts forever." Mm. For sure. And I think this is and something I I, that can go on. I think it can only get bigger. Maybe there'll be an even bigger release of this down the line where you can get the original Twisted Souls cut included when more people come together and, and they can patch that well, thing Well, the up. Twisted Souls hey, cut. If we're, if we're getting the, um, if we're getting the frickin' Snyder cut of Justice League, surely we can get a proper <laughs> well, cut of Spookies. To be fair, Spookies was only 90% complete, so is actually no ending. <laughs> so e- even a Twisted Souls cut would still not be a complete film. It would just be the It'd most be complete cool, it could yeah, be. It would be cool to see. I think you guys should should look up some of Al's movies because he's a great effects artist and like I said, I have, he and I have sat and talked for hours after this, so He's a really cool guy. Like just He's a awesome, really nice guy. very salt of the earth. He's got a guy. lot of funny stories I cannot repeat on this show. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> but but also, you guys need to go check out Spookies. Let us know what you think about it at twelve oh one beyond at gmail dot com. That said, where can people contact the David? You can contact the David at Facebook and on Twitter at David Irons seventy nine. And where else can you contact me? Uh, Instagram at David Irons Writer. And where, so where, where can we find the Canadian Chucklehead? On Twitter at Cinematica, on Facebook the Cinematicus, YouTube the Cinematicus, of course 1201beyond.com with other fine programming, and if you want to throw some money at me, at Patreon at Cinematica. And you can contact me at the aforementioned 1201beyond at gmail.com. You can go to 1201beyond.com, remember the Nord code, remember the Adam and Eve code, and go check out Spookies. It is on YouTube, so you can go see it. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.